What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look what's going on in pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan. I am joined by my trusty co-host Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, you staying uninfected over there? Yes, sir. Only, and I re- request that you only refer to me as Baby Pluto now, FYI. <laughs> oh, you don't want to be Renji? <laughs> I, I guess I'll be Renji for this podcast. You're Renji. <laughs> we, we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, three albums from three, uh, I think, very solid hip-hop artists, especially people who are rising in the hip-hop sphere. We have a couple of shows and quite a few movies to talk about. But before we start, please hit that subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube, go to soundcloud.com slash nostalgiapod. Listen to the podcast any way you want to. You can go to five-star reading review on iTunes. Circling back, though, Dave, the coronavirus sweeping the nation, man. Uh, the world. Know, yeah, the world. Yeah, the, the globe. It's, it's uh, on the verge of becoming a global pandemic. Uh, schools are shutting down in New York City. Um, there's uh, Rome and Italy are basically shut down completely. They just announced all sporting events are now suspended uh, mm-hmm. while they, and everybody's uh, quarantining over there. It's pretty wild. Um, and in, in the sphere of what we talk about in this podcast, it's had, it's had an impact on some of the festivals um, that are, are key to festival uh, culture, including South by Southwest, which is largely considered like the kickoff of festival season every year, which was canceled for the first time in 30 years. Uh, not only that, but Bond set to come out next month. That date was pushed back. Having some widespread effects. How are you feeling uh, being up there in Boston and uh, hopefully staying safe from this, this virus? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the Bond one I thought was m- most... Uh most curious but then when you think about it more the press run required for such a movie begins well in advance and was going to kick off i believe overseas first so they're basically right up against it and it's kind of interesting i've seen a lot of spin on that it's actually almost a more desirable corridor now with no time to die moving to the weekend right before thanksgiving get the big pop then roll right into a holiday week uh you can see that actually being very successful for them. Assuming the movie uh, gets good reviews, um, and tough luck for Godzilla versus Kong, which had already been delayed to that same weekend. And yeah. after Godzilla, uh, King of Monsters, underwhelmed just a little bit last year, uh, I think Legendary was hoping that would be a nice, nice time frame for them. So r- rough stuff for them. Maybe they should push that back into next year. I don't know. Um, but yeah, South by man, that's rough, man. You know, yeah. that's a a huge, you know across the whole culture, everything happens there. Yep. Premieres, shows, everything. So to have that just not be there and not be replaced by anything, it's not like South by is happening in three months. It's just gone for the year. Uh, just kind of stinks. But, you know, it definitely feels like it's for the best, obviously, given where we're still at in the early stages of, you know, containing everything with the COVID. Yeah. And, you know, kind of talking about Bond and and and. I think that makes a lot of sense for them. And I think it's a good point about uh, Godzilla versus Kong. They must've just been like, God damn it. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're punching the desk. Um, I'm very interested to see what happens with the live events moving forward. Specifically March madness is two weeks away. Uh, I think less than two weeks away at this point. Um, 
and yeah, all the yeah. other tournaments are, are going to be happening leading up to it for the seeding. We, so, week from Thursday. Yeah, it's basically here. Pretty crazy. So th- there's a real possibility that March Madness might be played uh, in front of no crowds this year. Um, that would be a pretty wild scene. Um, I'm wondering if this is also going to impact things like the beginning of baseball season, if all those tickets and all, everybody that wanted to see opening days are not going to be allowed to go at those times. It's going to be fascinating to see how all these live events are, are impacted, including concerts. I wonder if, you know, like concerts and shows will be, um, you know, told not to either delay, uh, stream in a certain way. It's going to be really fascinating. I can't imagine that fans would be very happy with that if that was like a solution. It was like, ah, oh, you, you know, you'll get a special code to watch a live stream of this performance or something like that. So I don't yeah, know how no it's going to work. Pretty, pretty fascinating stuff. And, um, right now I don't have a lot of faith that things are going to be cleared up anytime soon. So this might be an ongoing issue moving forward. Uh, certainly. Yes. Well, what, why would, why would world leadership lead you to believe else, uh, anything else this time? Do, do we have a, I didn't check. Do we have any, uh, data about how this impacted the box office this weekend? Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Onward uh, was basically it was a low low number for Pixar standards, but like forty million or so. But that's also on uh, in line with the tracking, so it doesn't look like there was any impact on domestic box office. But foreign box office was, was uh, seemed to be just kind of soft for Onward in general, and of course it just didn't open like you know South Korea, China, I believe Japan as well. Uh, there's just no movies there right now. Yeah. So again, that's why Bond just wanted to get out because I think a big part of, uh, you know, Bond's success was going to be a big form. Some, of course, you know, I was actually, I think people were just uh, theorizing now about what movie has the best chance at a billion this year in terms of like Black Widow and Fast 9 and some other stuff. And I, I, my default choice was obviously Fast 9, but I'm like, wait, if Fast 9 doesn't get any China money when it comes out in about uh, two months, Oof. Different story, different calculus. So Jeez. yeah, uh, a lot, a lot of moving parts still. That's for sure. Yeah, that I'm actually really fascinated to see if if a lot of dates will be pushed back for movie releases, similar to Bond, and if we're gonna see just like a very dead period where only like a very select amount of movies are being released. Um, gonna be interesting to watch, and we'll be tracking it. So stay tuned. Um, let's start though by digging into some of these albums and. Starting with CJ Fly, Rude Boy. Uh, man, uh, I wasn't. Uh, this is this is uh, put put this on repeat for all these young artists. I wasn't very aware of CJ Fly uh, coming into this. drink. Um, yeah, but man, the, this first album I hadn't heard his mixtapes or any of the singles before really grabbed me. Um, and I think what I think what I really liked about this album was it, it seemed to really blend a new hip-hop sound with some old hip-hop flourishes and and uh like key elements to it It, like at points i really felt like i was listening to some some like mid-90s shit with Mm -hmm. some of the the production and at other times i was like this feels very modern and um cj fly really impressed me with this how are you feeling about rude boy uh yeah i like it i uh, i've always liked enough i think i just appreciated cj fly he was the first rapper out of pro era of course joey badass's crew mm-hmm. he was the first pro era rapper after joey to release any solo material so apart from those four early 
PE tapes. And yeah, the, the way I see it, 2013, Flytrap 2016, like you can see the talent, but I never was really wowed by his solo work just because I never felt he immediately had like a strong enough presence enough to like stand out. He was just kind of one of those like more lyrical throwback rappers that kind of just blends in with the other lyrical throwback rappers. And I still feel like sometimes he doesn't have the strongest like presence on the mic, but you can tell he just appreciates like the form and his whole, this whole uh, album is produced by Static Selecto, who's a bit of a New York uh, production legend at this point who also worked a lot with Joey, especially in the early days. And, you know, working with Static and just having that, you know, as you as you said, just kind of an old school New York sound is really cool. And then mixing that with like some more like Caribbean, West Indian mm-hmm. Patois stuff as the title track certainly leans into uh, is cool. So uh, in general, you can just expect like a high bar for the pro era guys whenever they drop anything. And it's kind of wild that we hadn't really heard anything from CJ solo in a while. Like I, I mean, he was on the beast coast album, but I feel like he was one of the voices that kind of faded to the back, uh, given that there were so many cooks in the kitchen for that. I guess his verse on left hand was probably his best moment, but yeah, this, this was cool. And, uh, I think block party with Kirk Neasy is probably my favorite one off rude boy, but as well as rude boy, the title track, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's just pretty solid. And, and you can, uh, I think it's, as you said, just kind of appreciate the uh, love for old and new. Yeah, it's definitely blend, blended really well. And I was going to give Static Select a shout out on this because I, I think the production on this is just fantastic. There's, it's pretty masterful throughout. And, um, you know, you mentioned Block Party, definitely one of the ones that stood out. I thought LV Ascot and uh, Grew Up were also two standouts for me. Um, but really, I thought the whole album flowed together pretty well i didn't feel like it really lagged or or sped up i guess the one thing i would say is i feel like he like the tempo or like the the feeling from each song kind of stayed low the whole time and i would have appreciated maybe a little bit more up tempo um but overall overall i thought this was a really strong first album quote unquote so uh good for cj fly man i'm happy for him um happy for megan the stallion as well because uh she dropped sugar uh, i guess this is her second studio album but it's just, i don't know it, it, yeah. it, i guess it depends on how you want to yeah I, I think fever's being called a mixtape right and tina snow's being called an ep and sugar uh was released in an abbreviated fashion so it's only 24 minutes wikipedia right now calls this an ep uh I don't know. The point is this was supposed to be longer and supposed to be her uh, proper official debut album. But due to all the recent uh, label issues, it came out in its uh, unreleased form. So yeah, this is definitely uh, the quote music project. We don't know what the fuck to call it thing. (laughs) Yeah. uh, What I do, do you want to start and just uh, go over quickly like the, the label issues and, and specifically Red Sox. Great. Carl Crawford. Just being an absolute dick here, man. Just hilarious that he's in the middle of this of all things. I really, I, I didn't know that. I had no idea he founded a, a, a indie label. Is it a fifteen oh one? Yeah, fifteen oh one. Or the fact that it's a label that's affiliated with Three Hundred Entertainment and actually found a star in Megan Thee Stallion. It's like their featured artist. It, it's just is very strange, but yeah, just basic uh, uh, label issues when an artist uh, wants 
to renegotiate because they're getting dicked over by a shitty contract they signed when they were younger or were misled on the tale as old as time. You can ask really anyone about this plenty of stories. And of course it was certainly in the news for even someone like Taylor Swift having uh, similar issues in terms of her, uh, her masters and whatnot. So yeah, but for Megan though, it seemed like uh, the temporary restraining order she secured from the courts was what she used to run with and release this incomplete album and just run it out there, which I guess is an interesting choice because like Magnus Stein is popping is in the zeitgeist. Uh, no, 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 worry about her going away anytime soon everyone loved reeler was really really great mm-hmm. and i'm just kind of curious why she wanted the rush something so bad reeler came out in may and tina snow came out december 2018 it's not like we've been dying for megan music we've heard a fair amount recently so i feel like this is kind of an interesting choice to rush something out but it's still pretty pretty good so i guess you can take it take it either way <laughs> you know i i think this is really uh, a very strong album. I think especially like the first half of it, pretty much up to like B-I-T-C-H or Rich and then kind of ends in a bit of a uh, low note for me. Um, but it's it's interesting to to think about kind of a, the where, where she's at, right? Because she, I think she said in an interview something like uh, the money or from the sales of Hot Girl Summer and Tina Snow or something mm-hmm. like that. She only got like, something like 15k or like 50k or something like that and Mm -hmm. sold i mean hundreds of thousands of copies just insane how how badly she's getting dicked over by uh right 1501 certified but like you said tales was time with these labels and and -and up-and-coming artists um i i think it i think this album could have taken a little bit more time and been been a little bit better but with the whole circumstance it makes a lot of sense maybe why she got this out thinking maybe like I'll fulfill another requirement for this and I have this restraining order. So just kind of get things out while I can and right. push this through the courts further. That being said, I, I really think maybe up until BITCH, this album was on track to be uh, one, uh, like a great album. I think it really lulls in the last couple crying in my car and mm-hmm. what I need are pretty forgettable songs, but <sighs> she just has a, a real knack for just coming across as like such a badass and just like, for sure, uh, <laughs> like just owning every track she's on. And it, it's such like pretty simple production. Like nothing on here really stood out as like, Holy shit. Like it, no, nothing on here. It's the level of static selecta, but she just crushes every single track that she's on. Like captain hook, which I added to our nostalgia best of 2020 playlist. Um, just so badass like she just fucking kills that that track and it has it, it sounds so cool with that like sword sharpening in the background or like mm-hmm. being unsheathed or whatever it is and it, there's just little things like that throughout that just buoy her to being such a fucking star on this it's really great um did you feel the same way oh yeah for sure ain't equal savage captain hook those first three tracks are just more of the classic what we expect from megan in terms of just fire bars incredible confidence and presence on the mic and you know it's just it's just fucking hot bars like the whole time and um you know then you have something like hit my phone where i think that and that's also good too because it's more hot bars from megan mixed with a real i think mixed really blended really well with a really strong hook and 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 verse from kalani and then bitch which was the lead singles came out a few months ago that one's cool because it's more of like a dipping into like R&B in which I appreciate yeah. because we've known 
from two projects now that she has the bars and she has like that technical ability and can just fucking wrap her ass off. But it's cool to hear, I think, play with R&B more. And that's where I actually kind of appreciated the last few tracks on this, even if I think they're a little, you know, undercooked, crying in the car, what I need. They just kind of reminded me of like how Rico Nasty and Doja Cat have also shown other sides to their sound. And I think especially even in Rico's case, that's not like their best work, but just proving that you're, you're even less and less one dimensional, I think is cool. And then like the case of stop playing, I think that's where it works the best because it's still more that R and B flair, but then she also like does Gunna's sold out dates flows on a track with Gunna. And she basically just made a Gunna mm-hmm. song with Gunna. That was pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, rich, rich is like 90 seconds long. Probably could have cut that. And yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, those last two tracks aren't that great, but I, I think it's just the sentiment of where her head's at in terms of evolving as an artist that I appreciate. Yeah. The Megan, the stallion takeover continues, man. She's uh, she's a rocket ship in terms of, uh, female but more specific, like on, on the broader scale just rap in the rap game right now she's gonna be a superstar and if she's not already um any anything else you wanted to say about this before we move on to a surprise album so i think it's interesting about the megan album is that uh this is only projected to do 35 to 40 000 first week which is actually up from what fever did which is 27 so that i mean that that should sound low to people it is i guess pretty low for a hip-hop release and you wonder if this got put out with 1501 doing zero like real distribution and stuff, I'm not sure about that, but even still Megan is only one of like, I don't know. She's like one of like five female rappers that has had a top 10 album in like the past 10 years. Mm -hmm. And like after Nikki and Cardi, it's only a few other people, you know? So she's already like, I think really just kind of pushing forward. And of course we talked a lot about the, just the overall wave of new voices, female voices in hip hop, but she's certainly rising to the top. Even if, uh, you know, I think commercially there's still tons of room for growth. So we'll be hearing from her soon enough, hopefully. For being only 25, to have that be your your contemporaries, your the people you're comparing yourself to, Nikki and Cardi, pretty uh pretty solid. <laughs> so yeah. uh, she she's not hurting, even if maybe the sales aren't where they want it to be or the streams. Uh, why don't right. we? move on though to eternal a take an album that's been in the works since like what tw- late 2017 yeah. um yep yeah uh i guess he tweeted about it in july end of july 2018 um to then only tweet that he's uh he's done with music he's retiring in uh, january 2019 there were some leaks even put on spotify under fake names album seems to just kind of be uh in a mysterious production place and then all of a sudden march 7th there it is he tweets about it he drops yeah. it and uh it's on our spotify's and dave how are you feeling about eternal a take yeah dude uh it was so interesting too because it was it maybe a week ago 10 days ago uzi started tweeting a lot and specifically tweeting a lot about this album and he starts like putting polls up for what he what should be the cover and it's like oh wait there's like real smoke now this is this is this is different than before and, you know, similar to Megan, for a long time, Uzi was beefing with his, uh, his label. He had signed a generation now, uh, DJ Cannon, a uh, DJ drama and Don Cannon's uh, imprint on Atlantic Records. And uh, it did get confirmed by, I think, Rolling Stone that they had, were preventing him from releasing music due to, you know, various things. And um, 
it did seem like maybe we had a chance last year when he dropped a few official singles, uh, which are not on this, of course. That's a rack, same with Paradise, those tracks. But yeah, then then the fact that like I think everyone was thinking, all right, next week, yeah, was it the 13th? Wow, this Friday, it was all right, that's probably the day we're going to get the Uzi album, the album mm-hmm. as well. And then he's like, fuck it. That was the plan, motherfuckers. But I'm dropping this shit now. I mean, what was it, like 10 a.m. or something Friday? Like, it, it was not like a new music Friday, like, get everything ready for it. No, that was like, it was just kind of like early Friday morning. He's like, mm-hmm. he just sprung it on everyone. And I think that was really exciting because you somehow got the surprise factor with all this uh, pent-up excitement and just, you know, rabid fans who were really anticipating this project. And I think this is satiating the fans. This is, this is good. This delivered. And uh, I think that's surprising. I think this is probably his best work to date which I really did not expect because we're definitely in a different phase of Uzi's career than we were when he blew up about four and a half years ago. So I, I really liked a lot of it. Obviously, it's a long-ass project. There's plenty, plenty to cut here if you wanted to, but uh, I think there's just so many great moments, especially for big Uzi fans. That it's, uh, I, again, I'm just kind of, kind of uh, blown away that it's as good as it is. Yeah, you know, when, upon my first listen to it, I was really... Um, really just not taken by it. Um, and it took me maybe another listen, a couple of plays through like my favorite, the, the songs that stood out the most and a couple of the ones that didn't grab me, but I saw people tweeting about a lot to, I think, find the appreciation and, and see that this is, uh, there, there's a lot of quality here, but I do think the, the number of tracks, um, does detract a bit because I, I i don't think every track on this is good i think there's a couple that certainly could have uh been cut or just kind of seem redundant compared to some of the other stuff that's on here um it's it's interesting because as i was listening to it, i kept kind of being like oh is this the end is this the end and it, it's it's kind of put together by like skits right yeah so it's it's what Uzi's in, like taken by aliens and he's like going through space and I don't know like being probed or some shit. I think at one point he's like about to <laughs> right. be probed and like it's out. It's it's a concept, you know. But baby Pluto, Renji, and little Uzi Vert, like these yeah. three like discs, quote unquote. Ex- exactly, and I think um, I think the beginning, the the baby Pluto part, I like a lot. I think yeah. Pop is a fucking banger. Um, I also like you better move a lot. I think that song goes. Um, the second half, I'm like, okay, this is this isn't grabbing me as much as the first part. Then we get to the little, the little Uzi part, the ending, and I found that to be probably the most up and down. You know, especially with the bonus tracks, like that way is a fucking awesome song. Like you know, you're <laughs> you're sampling Backstreet Boys, it's right. catchy as hell. It feels right in line with EXO Tour Life and just kind of like that same vibe. But then the other like bonus track uh was it futsal shuffle 2020 futsal shuffle 20 i didn't that didn't grab me at all and like i just kind of found myself like up and down near that last part and i think that kind of left me with like a is this album really that good or what i just kind of like i don't know more into it at the beginning and the long runtime just couldn't keep up with it i don't know how are you feeling just as like going through the different sections the different discs uh, yeah, I think in that sense, it's a lot like a lot of his other stuff. Like Love is Rage 2 had plenty of fat as well. Perfect Love Tape definitely had a lot. But like, you know, Little Uzi Vert versus the World 2016, that's probably his most celebrated project as a project. You know, I don't think Uzi 
really is someone who is going to deliver on the concept. It's funny listening to people, uh, the producers like TM88 and other guys talk about like the process of working with Uzi. And by all accounts, he is in the studio all the time and does really work a lot. But that also means he makes a shit ton of songs. But it does sound like he uh, takes his time on songs, not like he just craps out a million songs a night, like say like a future does or something, you know? <laughs> so I, I think he's someone who like his concept on like projects is going to evolve. At the end of the day, though, he's not the kind of rapper who's ever going to consistently deliver on that kind of thing. I think when it pops, though, of course, it's kind of like one-off stuff, like Exo Tour Life, obviously his most celebrated song, a song with a over a billion streams on Spotify. It was my number one song of 2018. It was in my decade songs as well. A song like that, uh, he just threw up on SoundCloud. That was not like the centerpiece of an album. <laughs> he was put on Love Is Rage 2 because it was already out and was such a big hit, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I, I just, you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're asking Uzi to give us um, profound, something profound or at least something more coherently thoughtful like that, I don't think we're ever going to get that. Um, but I think what people like about this is that you get a lot of like the classic things you want from Uzi. Like some of those songs, like, all right, this is the shoulder shimmy, eye rolling Uzi that everyone likes. And you know, you can just get down with that track. So for me, it's just kind of like moment to moment, which is how I've treated all of those other projects as well. You just take what you like, you discard what you don't, because he's, he does have a unique voice in hip hop. I think he has, he has a lot of varied flows, but he can kind of make those kind of flows his own, which is really cool. And uh, at the end of the day, he's just the, it's it's an interesting form of bravado, you know. Like he's je- definitely just as cocky as Megan Thee Stallion, but they sound so different, of course. So yeah, he, he's definitely he's his own guy. I think that's why he ultimately has become so popular because um, there's just something kind of endearing about his music. It, you know, just, just to maybe play devil's advocate, when I when this album dropped, the amount of attention it got like on Twitter, the amount of excitement it really drew from people. Um, it felt a lot like what you see for like a Drake drop or a Kanye mm-hmm. drop. It like, it's obvious that he is um, seen in, in such a, and held to such a high stature within the hip hop world. And I think rightfully so, like you said, he made a song um, that literally is like song of the decade. If you even did songs of like the, you know, since the 2000s dropped, it could possibly be in the running, or at least like probably top 20. It's it's that undeniable. Um, should we though then just kind of be like, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna drop some songs that are good, and just drop a lot of stuff that we're gonna forget about? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I think I don't think. Well, I think the key difference here is so that no one says he's like the best rapper in the game. Sure. You know, like mm-hmm. people say Drake's at the top, right? And he usually is, or at least he's in the top three. So then you can you hold that higher standard, you know. Whereas I, I think ultimately people treat Uzi with lower stakes, even the fact, even despite the fact that he can transcend those low stakes from time to time. But yeah, it, it really is all about how you contextualize it. But you know, speaking to that excitement, uh, right now or at least uh, Monday, uh, seventeen of the top twenty tracks on the Spotify US fifty are new Uzi songs. It's and crazy. Baby Pluto track one supplanted. Roddy Rich's The Box at number one on the U.S. Top 50. The Box had been number one since December 26th. <laughs> so now the question is, will The Box finally be dethroned from number one on Billboard, of course, where it's been reigning for like about seven weeks, I think. So the, uh, the, the interest, the, the, the uh, consumption is <laughs> without question. I think it's going to do around 300,000 first week, which is interesting because Love is Rage 2, the last time we got a project, was 135. 
he's basically doubling his last project sales, which, uh, which, which is, which, which is pretty nuts. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you mentioned some of the songs you liked. Um, I agree. I think, I think the beginning probably flows the best, the baby Pluto stuff, baby Pluto, low main. Um, that's kind of more of a classic throwback Uzi sound. Um, towards the middle, I like bust me specifically the first like 30 seconds. I think that really hits and it kind of flips up into more slower stuff. Uh, prices was cool. Prices, funny enough, is sampling way back by Travis from Birds Off the Trap. That was kind of cool, kind of like a low key sample at that. Um, I like Footsoul Shuffle uh, more than you. I think this is kind of it's just a, a catchy Uzi song, but I, I suppose not a uh, fancy or anything like that. Uh, Chrome Heart Tags I liked as well. Funny enough, that is produced by uh, Big Sosa himself, Chief Keef, who's becoming a bit of an underrated, under the radar, under the radar producer now, which is cool. Um, but for me, of course, the highlight is P2 right at the end, which is of course sampling Exo Tour Life itself. Team 88 basically uh, talked to Uzi and they um, wanted to re- recreate the sound of Exo Tour Life in a certain sense. They stripped out with different drums and they tweaked it a lot. And they somehow made like a sequel track that's, I guess, more personal than Exo Tour Life, which is funny because Exo Tour Life is like a really like introspective song that talks about being okay with being addicted because it keeps you controlled. Like the fact that he could somehow make a sequel to that thematically, let alone sound good once again, uh, just kind of blew my mind. Honestly, when I heard this, uh, you know, when I when I hear when I hear the beat. Like, wait a minute. And you realize their lyrics are different. Like, I, I know hyperbole, and my jaw really did drop. I just kind of like stare into the void for the first verse. I was like, oh my God, this really happened. And yeah. then I listened to this track like 20 times already. So, yeah, I, this shit rocks. I, I think P2 is really good. And like you said, I think it's it's smart and definitely almost like a bit shocking. Cause I, when, when I heard it, because I was listening to it while I was. Uh, at the gym and I was I think I was running or something like that and I literally had to check my phone to see if I was still listening to Eternal Take or if like Spotify just kind of rolled it into like the top songs from this artist I was like holy shit like this is a it was a really like cool idea um I I wonder if if we're gonna see people start doing more of this type of stuff though but this feels such like a interesting interesting way to like like you said make like a sequel to a song um yeah I mean, it was it was a great idea. Um, how did you feel about just like the overall like production and like the sound of this album? Yeah, I I think it's ultimately kind of just it jumps around, you know. Yeah. Like he, uh, I forget his name. Was it Brandon Neston or something? Produced a lot of this. I forget. Um, yeah, it sounds like modern modern trap beats. Nothing nothing too fancy. Nothing too uh, special. Like I like the, I like the Chief Keef beef, but. Yeah, um, it just sounds like modern LA yeah. rap, really. Nothing remarkable, I guess. I didn't think it was anything mind-blowing, but I still felt like um, it jumped around enough and was varied enough, especially like tempo-wise, tone-wise, where I thought it was interesting. You know, something we kind of knock CJ Fly for, I think we can say the opposite, is that he definitely plays around with flow, definitely plays around with tempo and energy, right. and uh, I give him a lot of credit for that. Overall, I think this is a really solid um a really solid project but i think one that i'm probably rating a little bit lower than most people are at least from what i see online yeah well, i think ultimately it depends what you want from uzi because he also could give you 
those like slower sad boy tracks, hmm. you know, and I think sometimes those don't really hit. Those are not great hangs sometimes, you know, um, I just like them usually for the high energy stuff or when it's something that just kind of transcends everything like XO for life. Mm-hmm. So I think people are just kind of approaching this for different, different reasons. So it depends what you like about Uzi, but yeah, it's not like I like the whole album. There's again, it's 18 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> Hard I to make think, all those, good. you know, he's, he's giving you a lot of uh, what you want still, if you're a fan of him already. So uh, that's, that's pretty great. Cause again, you know, this is a guy who teased retirement and has previously seemed to have had at least maybe something going on with substance abuse. Not really sure. So I'm just happy that, you know, it seemed like Uzi was truly in command of what he wanted to make and, yeah. and, and did in fact deliver that. And like being the production, as you said, uh, producer story, apparently Uzi just goes through hundreds and hundreds of beats. Like he acts for like huge beat packs and like, he, he, he does seem to be a pretty methodical rapper when it comes to constructing his things. And like we said, I don't know if the themes that he's going for necessarily resonate, but I still appreciate uh, his a, a, attention to detail, which I think a lot of people assumed he really didn't have when yeah. he kind of blew up a few years ago as a aloof young 20 something year old. No, I, I agree. Um, we'll probably be putting one or two tracks onto our now nostalgia best of 2020. So go follow that on Spotify. Um, I'm going to talk real quick, Dave, about a movie that dropped on Netflix uh, called Spencer Confidential, uh, directed by Peter Berg, starring Mark Wahlberg and uh, Winston Duke, uh, based off the Ace Atkins series Wonderland. And it seems like there's going to be uh, quite a few of these made for Netflix. Um, they definitely set up a sequel at the end of this, and uh, I'd imagine if Peter Berg and Mark Wahlberg want to continue to make these, that they will keep doing it. However, I am hoping that this is the only one that they make. Uh, <laughs> this is you know, really Netflix movie. You don't say. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, I was talking with a um, friend of the pod, Sean McKenna the other day uh, about this movie. And I was like, you know, I'm watching this Mark Wahlberg, Peter Berg movie on Netflix it's pretty crappy, man. And I was like, I feel like Netflix is either really terrible or <laughs> makes really good movies. Like you have the Irishman and Roma, or you got, uh, I even forgot about the, movie the last thing you wanted. Yes, the last thing you wanted or, or movies like this. And this is definitely a step up from the last thing you wanted. Um, you have Mark Wahlberg, Winston Duke really being this, this team, uh, Mark Wahlberg is this exiled cop who goes to prison for beating up the police chief because there's all Classic. this dirty, all this dirty business going on, and he gets out of jail um, after beating up Post Malone and who, who plays a, a white supremacist in this movie who's in oh, jail. Okay. Um, yeah, not, exactly. not, not not hard to see. No, not hard to see at all. Yeah, he's he's all right. Um, but you know, he gets out of jail and then he goes, he's uh, goes back and he's helping his this, this guy he lives with. Um, his friend who runs a boxing place. So, so far you have a basically like a cop movie. It, it kind of turns into a bit of a detective movie and you got a boxing movie kind of all rolled into one. Winston Duke is a boxer at this place who Mark Wahlberg has to take under his wing because he doesn't know how to fight. Mark Wahlberg does. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> it doesn't do any of those three genres any justice really. Like the the like detective side of it, like, I feel like what you follow is just really uninteresting a lot of the time. 
um the action and like cop movie type stuff is it's a very like played up and very like stylized in a sense and it feels almost kind of like you're watching a video game like you'll like uh uh you'll be going through this adventure and then you get to this checkpoint and then it will like zoom out and there's Mark Wahlberg squaring up with somebody and then (laughs) fight the bad guy almost. It's funny. Yeah. It felt very weird. And then the, uh, the boxing stuff, I just was like, why the hell is this even in here? I guess like you have to establish Winston Duke as this like killer, this guy who can like throw people through walls, bit of like a, Hmm. I don't know, like a Bane type, uh strong person but you know with a big heart he's very kind it's like gentle giant who can like beat the shit out of you and kill you if he wants to um eliza scherzinger the comedian is the love interest for mark Wahlberg in this and like they have a very weird dysfunctional relationship and have a this is really strange scene where they fuck in a bathroom very loudly and break a lot of shit in there while they're fucking it's incredibly weird um and just kind of feels like it doesn't really fit for the movie and make sense to it that much and really what i was just left with with this was just uh i just want peter berg to stop using mike mark Wahlberg in all of his movies five times to, now yeah but in the last five i think it was like mile 22 deep water horizon um this lone one survivor and patriot's day and lone survivor is like the only one that i think was worth making and, and I like Patriots Day good. too. Did, I, I actually haven't seen that one, but Lone, Lone Survivor to me is a good movie. It's a yeah. good war movie. Um, and Peter Berg, you know, did Friday Night Lights. He, he did. Uh, I think he produced the television show as well. He's he's got talent, but he just seems to have kind of fallen into this same type of movie using Mark Wahlberg over and over. Doesn't seem to be helping any. Um, I don't know. I just. Uh, I, I want to see something different moving forward. I feel like they each can do different stuff. Mark Wahlberg's kind of interesting. because I feel like he just kind of makes the same three types of movies. Um, and then like, just kind of rinse and repeat, you know, yeah. um, I've been collecting checks for a while. It feels like, like with, what was it? Uh, Daddy's home comedy role, Peter Berg movies. And, I don't even know like he, he mark Wahlberg kind of disappointing like he's, really he's kind of mailing it in because like once in a while he does something you know enjoyable like pain and gain or departed yeah but it, or even uh the other was the other guys or is, is it the good guys i forgot yeah oh yeah the other guys for the sure. other guys it's a pretty funny yeah. movie like and adam mckay and i think maybe that's the thing is berg isn't one of those top level directors when Wahlberg works with these good directors right. seems fighter yeah, the fighter seems to bring something more out of him, um, but I don't know. It, I was I was a bit disappointed. I, I thought this was going to be a lot better than it was, um, but this is where we're at. Um, Winston Duke probably was my favorite part. Just like he he had some of the best lines, some of the funniest moments, um, and I, I'm interested to, sh- to see where he goes. You know, he was in Black Panther, obviously, than us. Um, I want to see him working with some better directors and hopefully getting some more roles moving forward. So for sure. Oh, He's also Bokeem Woodbine shows up that. as the, uh, the villain in this uh, crooked cop who's Mark Wahlberg's buddy. And then you find out was really behind it all the whole time. Yeah. It, he just looks so much like Dave Chappelle. It's almost like off putting, you know, he I does want look to a lot like him. That's true. 
I want him to wear a wig like he did in uh, Fargo. Because yeah. <laughs> I just look at him and I'm like, yo, this is Dave Chappelle now fighting this guy. So overall, really disappointing movie. Let's talk about some better ones, Dave. Let's start with, uh, you want to start with Seaberg or Emma? Let's do Seaberg first. Talk to me about it. Yeah, Seaberg is a very interesting film. Uh, this premiered at Venice last year and then just came out. Uh, here in the states, did not release wide. It, it topped out 373 theaters, and then it went down last weekend. So, uh, if you if you didn't get to see it, uh, you're not going to because this was released by Amazon, who never hey. has box office success. So, or for the course here, it'll be on Prime soon. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's directed by it's directed by Benedict Andrews, and it's about Jean Seberg, the famous actress played by Kristen Stewart. And uh, yeah, this movie uh, doesn't come quite together, but you can like see all the threads and like appealing parts about why they want to make this movie that would be tantalizing to anyone. And it's just kind of messy, which is unfortunate because I think Kristen Stewart, who is quite a talented actress, but she's having a really bad run of bad luck with, some just some poorly received projects, you know, with Charlie's Angels and Underwater, and now this one. But I think she she is giving it her all. And the Gene Seberg story is not one I was familiar with, but uh, ultimately, really, it's about a movie about a famous actress who I think she was more, really more successful in France. Uh, she kind of became like a really famous part of the French New Wave at the time. And you know, in the late '60s, she uh, shows her public support for the Black Panther movement and starts giving. Uh, monetary donations because she's of course a very successful uh comfortably living actress at the time and as a result the fbi starts uh trying to ruin her life through the counter uh, counter pro program which of course eventually became uh illegal doesn't right? sound like the fbi i know yeah, yeah of course not right and uh part, and along those lines you have vince vaughn who's this uh kind of shitty FBI guy that's playing a real, real dick, honestly. And his understudy is a, a new person to the force in LA, a new, new detective played by Jack O'Connell. And uh, his wife is played by Mark Qualley. And, uh, you know, Seberg, she early on, she meets um, uh, someone affiliated with the Panthers, Keem Jamal, played by Anthony Mackie. And his wife is played by Zazie Beetz. She's like, oh, all these talented actors. This is, uh, this should be good. And yet it's not. And, I mean, and like as annoying as I'm watching and I'm like, I get what they're going for. They're like, wow, uh, this is kind of like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Sharon Tate, gone too soon, remembered for the wrong reasons. Should have been more than that. Gene Seberg, life was totally ruined by the FBI. Uh, after everything that happens in her story, you can look it up if you want. It's just history. Um, she never acts again. Like, she, like her, her life completely changes due to this. And like, uh, it it you could see see that that's like the thread they were trying to 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 wield, but like they don't commit to giving Stewart I think enough runway to really run with the role because she is good when she's given time, but like to kind of like pull back on the point of view, and we're almost focusing more on Jack O'Connell's uh, presence in the movie as he's like uh, Hakeem Jamal has like a quote early on to Gene. He's like uh, you know in terms of like changing institutional racism and everything's like uh, yeah change one mind at a time and like oh okay well that one mind uh, was was gene and gene hopefully can try and make a difference at least by just being an ally and you know offering her house for meetings and 
money and all that. No, actually, this movie, that one voice was Jack fucking O'Connell, who who was, you know, the one doing all the surveillance, but decided that he realized he was being a piece of shit. And like, it, it, it just, it, it doesn't come together, it's unfortunate, because I think there was definitely a much more, uh, a, much, a much stronger movie that could have landed, I think, a more effective emotional punch uh, somewhere in here. But yeah, you're just kind of wasting a lot of talent. Like Margaret Qualley, talk about a role does not pass the Bechdel test. She's just literally just playing a the the, the young wife for a, for a new couple. You know, I think she's just a tad overqualified for that at this point. You know, as an Emmy Emmy nominated actor. Um, yeah, so this is a it's a bit of a miss, but I think it's an interesting movie to at least give like a give a peek to just to see um, Stewart. But yeah, it's uh, it's kind of unfortunate that it didn't quite work out because. I remember when I saw the first trailer, I was I was pretty intrigued. But yeah, it's a uh, it's a little rough. To to have a, a movie with where Kristen Stewart is the lead become about Vince Vaughn and his growth, you know, and to kind of overlook the the female lead is just, especially in this climate, uh, yikes, um, not not what you want, and uh, definitely something I think Amazon should have been like looking at more closely, like who is this actually about and what, yeah. where is the plot going? So that's it's, a big it's need miss. to be rewritten, honestly. Jeez. Uh, well, why don't we move on to hopefully a better movie? Emma. Yes. Emma. Uh, I liked Emma a lot more than Seberg. I think Emma's a, honestly really, really, really fun time. And Emma of course is a Jane Austen adaptation. It's been adapted before on, in film and TV. Jane Austen, as we know, Probably most famously for Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, just generally a uh, uh, wealth of, uh, of works ready for adaptation, similar to uh, Louisa May Alcott, who we recently talked about for Little Women. Um, and I've never seen any of the previous Emmas. I believe the most famous one was with Gwyneth Paltrow. Uh, had you seen? Had you seen that? No. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really didn't know uh, what it was about at all. It's actually interesting because I think this is a one of her one of her last works that came out but it's it, it, it's interesting because it, it's more of just like a, like a, a more frivolous like comedy it doesn't have as, as lofty grand uh, story as something like pride and prejudice and i think at the time actually it was kind of looked down upon it jane austen's like well i kind of just wrote this for me and i think the lead character emma uh, emma woodhouse played by annie taylor joy i think emma is a character only i would like like so, I and not not that we were alive when Jane Austen was 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 cooking, but I appreciate that attitude about about your work. You know, I was like, oh, fuck it, I wrote this because I wanted to write it. I don't give a shit what you think. Um, Keep that energy. Yeah, um, it's cool because you know you might watch this trailer and be like, ah, oh, this is a costume drama. I don't like costume dramas. I'm not into this. But the thing is, that's it's really yeah, that's you. This is a period comedy though. It's it's they're in the costumes. Yes, we're set in a. Uh, pre-Victorian uh, London countryside, hanging out with some uh, some landed gentry. Emma, Emma is a uh, very wealthy twenty-year-old who uh, does not need to marry because her uh, single dad, played by Bill Nighy, uh, is a uh, you know does does not doesn't need her to do that. They have enough wealth, so she's kind of hanging out, and she's kind of just basically like a socialite who like kind of like runs like the runs the town and tries to like matchmake people in town because it amuses her and she just thinks she's you know the smartest and the the, the most beautiful one in town and uh, i think well, i think there, there there was a the tagline which is from the book and being the movie uh, emma handsome clever and rich 
that's kind of how she, you know, mm. lives her life. But what I liked about it was that, you know, I think on, on its face, like it has a very like Wes Anderson color palette, which is nice. And you see that combined with like the, the costumes and the settings, of course, and you expect that to, 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 to be great. But because it's a comedy, I think it's actually best compared to something like The Favorite, but without, without like the more darker, um, sadder tone that occupies a lot of what happens in The Favorite, this is much lighter. And it also, I think, challenges the viewer because it really just throws you right into the story, right into the middle of these characters' relationships, and you are just expected to pick up on things as you watch the movie and learn about everyone and going along with that there's jokes that get set up in the beginning of the movie that you just don't really understand when you first see it then when they pay off at the end of the movie you're like holy shit that was actually really funny and like seeing uh these these characters kind of like dress each other down and of course you know in older english parlance it's just kind of funny when you like when, when the whole theater is like laughing at like mm-hmm. an older english joke you know just not something you do all the time um and the, i think uh anya you know i think I really loved her in Thoroughbreds in 2017. Yeah. Everyone really liked her in The Witch from Robert Eggers. Definitely a really talented actress who's continuing to rise really fast. And we'll see how she acquits herself in New Mutants, although I probably won't hold anything that happens in that movie against her. Uh, I think Anya is really well picked for at least this uh, interpretation of the Emma character because she has a way of like emoting with her face and her like really engaging eyes that just kind of, you know, make up, make up what she, mm. what, what she looks like when she's acting. So um, tough to say why, I guess, but I, I think she was, uh, she, she, she did this role well, but then the key to this movie is uh, Johnny Flynn who plays George Knightley, who's like the foil to the Emma character and eventually uh, the love interest as well. Mm. And he, he's, uh, he's really great, but there's a lot of also just, characters that are just really like finely written for humor. Um, this guy, like Caleb Turner's in this a lot, a lot, a lot of talented English folks, two people from sex education, uh, Tanya Reynolds, who's, uh, hey. yeah. Was it the squid, the squid girl octopus? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She is, she's doing some completely different in this, but I think she's really great. Um, Mia Goth is kind of like Emma's like underling, like lackey in a sense. She's hilarious. Hmm. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, sounds like it, a good time. It is a good time. I enjoyed it a lot. This is a directorial debut from Autumn DeWild, too. Autumn, I'm not familiar with her, but she's a music video director and photographer. This is her first movie, but I think she quoted herself uh, pretty well. And uh, the, the score is actually co-scored by Isabel Waller-Bridge, the older sister of Phoebe. Wow. Um, Look yeah. At that. So, yeah, I think, I think it, it's a really fun time, and I, I appreciate that the movie uh, – doesn't just kind of go through the motions as an adaptation. It, it, it does attempt to challenge you. And, you know, the title on the poster and, and, and in the movie is Emma stylized with a period at the end. And everyone's kind of theorizing, oh, are they like poking fun at it being a period piece? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. I, I think that there's a certain like unique charm to this. So I'd say seek it out if you can, because period comedies like the favorite and this, uh, not, not too common but they're fun. Yeah. When you were talking, it sounded like you're going to say it was like the, uh, the favorite is, and uh, that would make me want to check it out more than something like pride and prejudice. It's not, not for me, but add a little humor. I'm, I'm down with that. I'll check it out for sure. When it hits 
probably streaming more than likely. Um, but we both were able to make it to the theater to see Onward, the new Pixar movie starring Tom Holland, Chris Pratt, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Octavia Spencer. Pretty solid voice cast. Um, following two brothers uh, in, in a magical world. Uh, they're, they're elves, right? That's, that's elves? Oh, yeah. Look at those ears, bro. Yeah, they're, they're elves who uh, live in a more modern world. The magic is gone or not, it's not as common Lost anymore. touch with the world. And, uh, you know, in, in classic Pixar fashion, they, one of their parents is gone or missing in some way. And right. uh, they're on a journey to find a way to meet their dad just for one day. Um, I left this movie being like, that's a pretty good like B uh, for, for Pixar. That's a pretty good B. I'll, I'll give them a solid is entertaining, had some heartfelt moments some laughs. Um, but overall just in terms of what the quality of Pixar is, it, this is going to be one of their middle tier movies. how did you feel about it? Yeah, it's funny. So like thinking about it, I totally agree with all the takes that it's more of a lower rent attempt at what Coco and inside out achieve. I totally see that and agree with that. Yeah, I had a really great time watching this movie pretty much start to finish. Um, and it's like, yeah, you can see the formula, the Pixar formula that is, you know, uh, hero's journey, um, sentimentality, all, all these things we associate with uh, Pixar, you know, something that is entertaining and engaging to children, but also is tugging at the heartstrings of the parents taking their kids. Uh, this it, it, it's a pretty tried and true formula for Pixar, and you can see that formula for this. But I don't know. I just found this. I found Onward, uh, just kind of endearing. I don't know. I think part of it was I really loved Chris Pratt as a uh, Barley, the older brother, yeah. and you know, kind of kind of being with a Jack Black impersonation almost. He doesn't always sound like himself. It does sound like Chris Pratt, but. I I thought he was kind of a riot the whole time and really funny. And yeah, you know, I think the ending, uh, again, you know, not dissimilar to Toy Story 3 meeting the death at the fire pit or whatever, you know. It's the ending we, we understand from Pixar films, but um, I thought it really worked, you know. So it got me. It got it me. It got you. But yeah, it, it, it's not like, it's not like top, top tier, but, you know, for I think for any, for any other any other movie you would like it. I think it's kind of where he's kind of grading on the curve. Sure. And that I, I agree. I mean, I think if this was like DreamWorks or something like that, we would yep. be like, this is a really great DreamWorks movie. But yes. when you're, when you're putting it up against some of like the, the best animated films ever made, of course it's going to fall a little bit down the rung, you know? Uh, I, I agree. I, I think there were some really funny moments with this. I especially liked the scene with uh, with the cops and where they get stopped and they have to yep. <laughs> impersonate the the step or the, like the, the new boyfriend or whatever, like Officer Bronco. That's what yes. it is. Um, I thought that scene was great. I also, I, I mean, the, the the scenes that were sentimental really were great too. Like the scene where the dad is dancing to the music, or like the half of the dad is dancing to the music right. and they're dancing with them. I thought was a really heartfelt and moving moment. There's a lot of great stuff in there. I think where it kind of falls just a, a little bit short is I, I did feel like there were some lulls, you know, and um, some, some moments where I was like, eh, eh, 
that, that was okay. Or I, I didn't really know if, if some of the things totally like got me like at the whole uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus, Octavia Spencer, like side journey with the, the Manicore. I was kind of right. like, ah, some of this is good. Some of this isn't really working for me totally, but I thought overall, the Manicore introduction was yes. great. You know, the, the, the side quest, if you will, getting the map. Uh, so that, that was awesome. And yep. I think that kind of connects to like the, the theme of like losing touch with the world. Um, an obvious parable for like how society is today. I wish they almost explored that more because that's a simple yet, you know, tangible idea that I think could have been almost just mined deeper, you know, but ultimately Pixar has to kind of, I think just want to reel everything back, you know, but it's still clever. Um, and I actually appreciate that. It's ultimately just a small scale story. Um, for now. There's right. definitely going to be a sequel to this. Well, and, and that is the thing. You know, this is their first original film since 2017 with Coco. Mm-hmm. They only released, I think, three original films last decade. Uh, Brave, Inside Out, Coco, and Oh Four, and The Good Dinosaur. Um, and then there was, you know, just sequels, right? And even if Onward is more towards the middle, it's still something brand new. And I think that's what we should ask Pixar to give us. Don't make Coco too. Don't make Inside Out to make new things. And uh, we don't know anything after uh, this year from Pixar. There's nothing else. Now that we're getting another one, Soul, in June, another original film. So that's cool. But yeah, I think uh, the, the lesson that you should take from Onward and the relatively new to box office, um, I think, again, just I think for the for sake of the art, you know, the Pixar formula is so try and true. Just apply it to new stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So. Um, we, 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 we don't, we don't need all the sequels all the time, but yeah. Um, I think in terms of like middle tier, uh, middle tier movies from, a a, a, a production Studio, house that we're well yeah. familiar with, uh, you know, pr- pretty solid. Definitely pretty solid. Uh, I, I'd recommend people check it out. Oh, there's um, also one, one funny observation I saw, uh, the Phoenix gem, of course, the MacGuffin of this film that powers the, the, the magic staff, uh, you know, just the latest line in Magic Stones of late with Parasite and Uncut Gems mm. and, of course, Avengers. So, <laughs> shout out Magic Stones. Yeah, when, when I saw Onward, the first thing I thought about was uh, definitely Parasite. That oh, was yeah. The first, my, my first comparison for it. Um, why don't we move on to some, some television shows? <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from some movies. Um, devs, the Hulu... FX, I guess it's FX on Hulu. Right. Um, Produced by FX on Hulu. Yeah. For, first one that they've really put out like that, I believe. And from Alex Garland, director of Ex Machina and Annihilation. Mm-hmm. Also, like I've been a, a writer of some pretty good movies in the past. Broke the Beach. Yep. And 28 Days Later, some uh, really respected person in his field uh, directing this. Oh man, I don't even know exactly how to describe it. I think mini you know, series. Yeah, it, well, it, it's a mini, it's a mini series, <laughs> but I think describing the genre of, I mean, it's sure. a, it's mysterious yeah. right now. It seems like it's part partly action, partly mystery, partly sci-fi. Um, there's a lot going on in the first two episodes that were dropped on Hulu last week, um, and I think what I'm I'm most taken by, and we're, we'll probably talk a little bit more in depth about, is the style of the show and the look of this show, but also like I feel like so much and so little happens in the plot and I'm so confused as to like what is actually happening in some of these scenes that 
man, uh, I'm, I'm just intrigued. Like I, that's the best way to put it for me. I'm so intrigued by what's going to happen with the show and what, what visually is going to, we're going to be seeing. You got to be watching. How are, how are you feeling about devs in, in the first two episodes? Oh yeah, man. I'm, I'm <laughs> of course totally in, uh, Alex Garland is just someone I think just deserves tons of admiration. He's directing all eight episodes of this. He wrote all eight episodes of this. He was also the cinematographer. Uh, he is one of those true sci-fi auteurs we've got of late, you know. Um, Ex Mahina was on my decade movie list. Annihilation, my 2018 movie list. I love his work. And I also am really intrigued by devs as well through two episodes for the same reason. Uh, his his vision is just so so stark, you know. His his he's an effect on you know what he's trying to do, and I think in terms of a TV comp right now, I'm almost thinking of like something like Maniac, you know. Maniac mm-hmm. even had a little bit more plot, but ultimately it was like Kerry Fukunawa's vision that you found most tangible early going. Like I do, okay, I see that there's a like there's there's a, there's a steady hand right now that's really trying to do something specific. Even if I don't know exactly what that is right now, I think we have a good enough track record in Garland's case to have a lot of faith. And, you know, at the end of the day, there's just amazing visual after amazing visual. Think of like the gold box that is the machine in the devs facility early on the first episode, stuff like that. Um, uh, It's just always engaging. Garland is always someone who doesn't really waste any of his frames, you know? And, uh, that's just something I find really, uh, really intriguing. So yeah, really, really excited about this. Yeah. And I, I went into this doing very little research about it um, because I, I kind of wanted to be surprised, but also knowing, uh, like you said, this is a, a creator and auteur that we can trust to deliver something interesting and, and quality. So, you know, in the first episode, you have Carl Glussman, playing I, I forgot his name yeah. um and he go you know he's this uh coder works yeah. in, at this like apple like company you know google like company and uh called devs and you think it's going to kind of follow his journey into devs and what they're yeah. creating what well they're the, the company at. is named something else was it onway or something devs is like the, the his project at the company yeah. right De- devs is the project at the company um and he's at the end of the episode killed, you know, like, or not even the end of the episode, like middle of the episode. And it totally takes a shift into being about his girlfriend. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm looking up her name right now. Played by uh, Sonia Mizuno, who, who was uh, a yeah, next Mahina, of course. Yep. Um, and her name is Lily. Uh, the main, she's the main character and kind of her like unraveling the story, um, you know, against Nick Offerman, uh, who plays Forrest? This, oh, and it's um, uh, of Amaya. See, got the it. Place. See, he's the CEO of Amaya, um, and kind of like his his team. His like his he has his thug who's like the security guy. He's got like his right hand person. Um, was it Kaylee Spaney? Yeah, from like uh, newsroom and things. Yeah, like Yeah, Allison that. Pill. Yes. Yeah, Allison Pill. Uh, sorry, it's Katie. Um, so there's there's a lot of like really quality actors in here, but just like the way it kind of spun things on me. And then it, it's kind of becoming like this also like a spy noir uh, show kind of in, in the second one, you know, she goes to meet with the handler for um, 
uh, sorry for Sergey's like I don't know it, Russian inner workings and then yes. there's a whole showdown that I think is set really beautifully between the security guy and him. There's just so many like scenes that stand out, images that stand out, and at yep. the center of it, I'm like, what the hell is depths? Like <laughs> that that shit looks interesting as hell. It yep. looks like you can see Jesus and the two people he's put on the cross with in one scene with what they're developing. It's potentially looking at like being able to like see things that happened in the past or relive mem- memories vividly. It's pretty crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, again, just kind of speaks to Garland's strengths where he challenges the viewer. He lures you in with talent and strong writing and memorable visuals, but he challenges you with his themes and his storytelling choices that I think that's very, very obvious in something like Annihilation, but he's something like Ex Machina, which has a lot of existential questions to it, you know? Mm-hmm. And Oscar Isaac's character in Ex Machina, I think is a pretty obvious analog for Nick Offerman and devs, you know, kind of the, the, the eccentric, rec- almost reclusive, yes. genius, you know, wealthy, famous inventor person, you know? Yep. So it's kind of a, you know, Jared Leto and Blade Runner 24-9. It's a pretty common archetype. But you can write it a lot of different ways, especially when you get someone who can get uh, cast someone who can be very neurotic, like Oscar Isaac or Nick Offerman. I think honestly, Nick Offerman, you, know, you wouldn't think of casting in something sci-fi adjacent off the bat. But he honestly, at least in the beginning, seems like a really great choice for this kind of character. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm excited about that. And Tony Mizuno, you know, I'm not really familiar with a lot of her other stuff besides her Garland collaborations. But um, I think you know the fact that Alex pick someone he had previously worked with in a lesser capacity for this role, I think speaks volumes. And I'm also excited about Alison Pill just because I feel like she was someone who coming off the newsroom, I was excited to see more from her. And I feel like she, she's been around, but we haven't had that like great next role from her, you know? Yeah. So I'm hoping this is a good supporting presence from her as well. Yeah. It, you know, I, I think Offerman, like you said, was a really inspired choice. Cause when, when you think of him, you think of Parks and Rec, right? And of course. You think of, him playing this comedian. He's done a lot of shows with his wife, uh, Megan Mullally. And um, it's just, uh, you know, they, he, he's this funny guy. And then he kind of comes into this and has such like a serious brooding, like you said, eccentric side to him. And it, I think that just adds to the mystery. Like you want to know what happened to him and why he is the way he is, what, what really drives him as a character and it seems like it might be the death of his daughter um but there's definitely a lot more to explore so i'm, I'm all in on depth i can't wait to watch episode three and just keep moving forward with this hell yeah man and uh, i think the the fx on hulu uh you know play i think is, is interesting but i'm actually kind of excited about that you know when, when disney bought fox they also got fx and fx i think is pretty widely known to tv fans as a consistent harbinger of incredible television of course the home of atlanta uh, most famously but the fact that now their shows are much more accessible to people by being on something widely subscribed to like hulu uh you're no longer required to have a cable login you know or, or pay a little bit for the with the, the fx app you know so I, th- yeah. I think this is exciting and john landgraf uh i think is probably gonna be happy about this too because he has a way to get his shows in front of more people so this is cool Definitely. Um, why don't we finish up with the, with The Outsider, a show on HBO that we didn't talk about. Um, we, we knew it was coming, but I think we both were, we were like 
interested in it, but maybe not bought all the way when it first dropped. And then, or at least I wasn't. And then it kind right. of took right. everything by storm. It also just came out like second week of January. We were just kind of busy covering other stuff anyway. So it was an easy uh, wait and see. We try to bring you as much as we can on this podcast. And that's why we're circling around as the outsider wrapped up last night. And I'm going to kind of give you the floor here a little bit, Dave. How, how do you feel about the finale? But I think just the show in general, you know, it's adapted off a Stephen King uh, story. Um, did, did you enjoy the outsider? I did enjoy the outsider. Uh, 10 episode season, not necessarily a mini series at this time. Although I think this 10 episode narrative is the last we'll see of these characters. I'm assuming. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll talk about that at the end. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, I think I like the beginning more where you get more of the Richard price aspect of this price wrote most of the episodes, not all of them. Of course, the famous crime novelist who also wrote, wire and the night of i think where he really started to shine as a as a television uh, voice and the, the initial setup i think is just flat out dynamite where you have the, the prospect of somebody literally being in two places at once clearly committed a crime and clearly was not able to commit the crime it's really high concept yet it's executed in such a perfect way and the almost stunt casting of Jason Bateman in the early episodes of Terry Maitland, I think really kind of sells that. And then when you go from there and you learn that again, as, as a Stephen King adaptation, there is going to be something supernatural, but they, they, they don't waste any time with that. You know, the, the pilot's really great because it, it from, from the first hour in, you're like, Oh wait, something is afoot here. Clearly something else is going on. Mm-hmm. And you know, once they bring in Cynthia Revo's character. Yes. Uh, what was her name? Lily? Um, Holly. 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 Sorry. Yeah. Once Holly comes in and you get this kind of other energy to the show when you stop following mm-hmm. Ben Mendelsohn as much. And, you know, I think maybe you could have trimmed it down a little bit. Maybe if this was eight instead of 10, it's just as good or even a little tighter. But I almost like the fact that we got just kind of extra time to see uh, how these characters come to grips with the reality of their understanding. And then it kind of ends like a Stephen King thing. You got to go get the, go get the supernatural guy, go kill the clown, you know, go in this case, go to the fucking cave and kill El Cuco. Um, But ultimately the outsider is more concerned about, you know, mentally, how something like this affects people and you know, the, 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 the various wives characters in the show as well. I think they, they, they get moments about you know, how everyone's processing grief and having their, their faith challenged and all that stuff. So yeah, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it was, it was really good the whole time. It's dark, you know, it's not a, not, not, not the funniest, the funnest time, but uh, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I, I, I got serious true detective season one vibes from this season. I thought it was really great. I thought Mendelssohn and Cynthia Revo playing these two people who had very opposing worldviews, one very narrow and rigid and black and white, you know, that there's, there's the evidence and you just go by the evidence. And then one who's like, there's more out there than we know, <laughs> you know, and the way that they kind of come together and play off each other by the end of it, I think was just fantastic. I feel like you had something to say right there. Uh, no, no, I totally agree. Oh, I totally agree. Um, um, 
I think the Bateman stuff was like you said, really, really smart. Cause I was totally sucked in. Like, Oh, we're going to get to watch Jason Bateman playing this character who has to like survive in prison. And while he, he might be innocent, that's going to be really interesting. And no, they totally flipped that in your head by episode two that right. he's, he's not part of this. And then you have a dynamite, uh, supporting cast. You know, you have Bill camp who, uh, pretty central character but probably what third or fourth lead in this like yeah absolutely uh, really i thought he was fantastic in this um cynthia revo who's I mean, she's excellent in everything she's in at this point like girl is just a, a dynamite actor and performer and everything um and then I, I really liked the stuff with terry maitland's wife and i'm i'm forgetting that actress's name um but i thought that was actually some of the most like fascinating like human building stuff about like how you when you're at the center of something like this and you were obviously not a part of it at all how you're kind of like the shrapnel and like the the casualties that no one thinks about and talks about and how you move on from it just really really interesting stuff um i'm hoping and this is where i kind of think maybe this cast someone from this cast might be back i'm hoping holly can uh, kind of be like the through line for this. And I think they kind of set something like that up at the end where she's kind of typing in her computer as like the credits roll mm. as potentially being like the person who goes around and is like facing these supernatural things. And she seems to have that ability to like spot those things too. Interesting. How would you feel about that? If that were the moving forward? Yeah. I was almost just think like the outsider itself could be just some kind of brand and they could. Yeah. Like kind of like what they do with the terror, you know, bring back the terror, but do something completely different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if that's appealing to Cynthia Revo, very in demand town at this time. She seems to really just enjoy jumping around mm-hmm. to uh, lots of roles. Absolutely, just a Terry Tubman. She's about to be in the third season of Genius as Aretha Franklin. Um, but that would be cool because maybe that in that case she would truly be like the lead from the jump. I guess I'm not sure, you know. Um, mm-hmm. I would probably advise them that to not continue the show if you're not getting price back, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting prospect. I think that what I really liked about Ario's performance is that she's, you know, she's playing someone that's probably on the spectrum in some way yet it doesn't get hokey. And I think she, she's mm-hmm. kind of just approaches the, the character and the writing helps this too with, with a certain like level of warmth, but also like, I guess, respect for the way people can be different than others. And, like there, there was a chance for that character to be really, just really off, and could have kind of honestly really hurt the show. The performance was done differently, but that was not the case. That was great, and yeah, uh, yeah Ben Mendelsohn, you know, crushing the American accent once again. You love to see that. Um, he, he's great in everything he is. It's nice to see him be a, not a bad guy. Yes. Also, you know, he's been a bad guy a lot recently, but uh, he's just a, he's just obviously a, a talented guy. And Bateman was behind the camera a few episodes in the beginning too, um, and we know he's honestly become quite the talented director. Uh, you know where those are. So yeah. yeah, I think outside, you know, uh, uh, I think I think HBO's found something with these early starting off the year with some kind of drama. They did True Texas season three this time last year. You know, um, the way the way they're programming, I think they figured something out with. Uh, anchoring the first wave of shows with this kind of drama. HBO seems to be really good at this, dude. I don't know. Yeah. They, they might development. make it. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, speaking of HBO, we'll be talking about the new Pope next week uh, as that's oh, yeah. wrapping up tonight. 
what else should people be watching for or listening to Dave? Uh, <laughs> oh, 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 oh man well uh our favorite show on tv is back westworld season three on sunday lol um I'll, I'll be chiming in on avenue five i'm I stuck with the show um this is also something that you know started airing with outsider and new pope so uh talk about that uh the hunt is finally coming out from universal the infamous film that was controversial perhaps uh for dumb reasons so that's cool uh first cow from kelly Riker, one of the most acclaimed movies of the year thus far is rolling out in a wider uh, a limited it's a limited but wider release really excited about that one um that got rave festival reviews last year and no real music to speak of octavian was teasing something though i'm not sure what that is but yeah uh plenty to discuss as usual it seems things are really picking up so exciting time definitely an exciting time and again soundcloud.com slash nostalgia pod follow the podcast anywhere you want there and go to youtube hit that subscribe button as well as a five-star rating review on itunes and nostalgia best of 2020 search that on spotify and follow that playlist and share it with all your friends so you can stay up to date with all of the music that we're listening to and that's good this year we'll uh we'll catch you next week peace out yeah.